Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today's topic is menopause. The onset of menopause is widely met with resignation and at least a modicum of dread. Traditional non-medical advice has largely been to simply soldier on as best one can. It certainly heralds in a new phase of life, the nature of which does not have to be anything but fortunate. Assessments of this experience cluster, if I may call it that, vary from the humorous to the more sober, with Margaret Atwood suggesting that it is simply a pause while you reconsider men, to Sandra Singh Lowe, who felt that in the end, the real wisdom of menopause may be questioning how fun or even sane this chore wheel of modern life actually is. And as we know, change in the mature usually elicits self-reflection. Ultimately, menopause is probably much like life itself, that is, what one makes of it, as well as the help one is able to access. Our guest today is Dr. Terrell Fallhaber. Terrell, welcome to HealthScape. So glad I got you here at last. Oh, thank you, Trevor. I'm pleased to be here. Great. So, um, so I don't have your bio with me here, uh, unfortunately. So can you just please tell us a bit about some of the highlights, interesting, snip, more interesting snippets of your extensive bio and impressive <laughs> Well, um, I'm originally from the United States. I received two bachelor's degrees from the University of Minnesota Duluth, one in chemistry and another in biology. I worked as a research chemist at the Environmental Protection Agency and the University of Wisconsin-Superior for three years and then moved to South Africa in order to study geochemistry and receive my Master of Science degree. Um, my, by that time, I'd acquired a husband, and he and I returned to the U.S. in the 1980s. Then I worked in environmental consulting and as a hydrogeologist on sites in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Georgia over the next three years. Uh, myself and my husband returned to Cape Town, South Africa, so he could run an architectural practice in his hometown, and I could attend medical school at UCT. After I received my degree, I worked many nights in emergency rooms, stitching up people, um, sports medicine, often on the field at rugby matches, and in the beautiful Sports Science Institute of South Africa as well as an outlying patient, outpatients department. And I worked in pharmacology where I wrote a book entitled South African Primary and Healthcare Handbook, Combining Western and Traditional Practices. Uh, in addition to this, I, I was a professional aerobics um, performer and instructor for Repoc Inc. in South Africa. We moved now with also a son and daughter in tow to Canada just short of uh, 2000 before the world was going to blow up <laughs> with the millennial change and settled in Saskatchewan for four years where I ran a rural family practice. Once finishing all the number of exams that you have to do to become qualified in another country. We moved out to Victoria, BC, where I had a family practice for seven years, worked as a GP in oncology for the following five and a half years, both in medical and radiation oncology. Um, at that time, I became 
adept in palliative care and continued working as a palliative care physician nights and weekends, even as I were, changed my day job to be a medical advisor at WorkSafe BC. Um, let's see. That, following that, I'm now in my hopefully forever job, again, at the, the cancer agency, working as a GPO in pain and symptom management and palliative care. And that's where I am now. Now, as far as menopause goes, I became a certified a NAMS, North American Menopause Society Certified Medical Practitioner back in 2009. I've been performing menopause consultations with women and others who are affected thus in various locations in Victoria. I've given a number of talks in Victoria and Vancouver to groups of medical professionals, as well as to as lay people and patients, usually which have been very well received. And I've worked with two other doctors to produce a combined CBT mindfulness program together with menopausal education called Mindfulness and Menopause, which is now being run by Dr. Tuz Goodrum at her clinic, Women MD in Victoria. And that keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> well, certainly a very varied and um, exceptionally giving you a lot of experience. And of course, you've settled your, your, your forever job is a very important field tough mm. work and thank you for for doing this important work now as most of you have realized by now Tarol is a friend and colleague and we have worked together in two very different medical um scenarios is that a good word Tarol? Mm. good enough okay <laughs> we can, can Tarol agrees we can go forward okay so Tarol. Is menopause generally one of the biggest challenges that a woman ever faces, as opposed to puberty, pregnancy, childbirth, birth, and advanced aging, or any other non-disease, non-traumatic bodily condition? Well, thank you for pointing out it is not a disease. Neither is pregnancy, which is often regarded as such. Yes. Um, Menopause is another one of the major hormonal shifts that women go through in their lifetime. Right. Every woman experiences this differently. There's never been and never will be a one-size-fits-all in any discussion about or determination of treatment for menopause. Right. So that everybody has to realize that if, if some people, they, they, the stats say around 10% of women never have any symptoms at all. Um, and they're the fortunate ones. There are many women who are so adversely affected by their symptoms that they give up work, they have to go on disability. And the worst symptoms have been said to affect the quality of life, similarly to that of being on renal dialysis. Wow, that's pretty severe, right? Oh, yes. It, it, it can be a major challenge for women. However, I have to put in that since you included advanced aging, that is really um, probably the biggest human mm -hmm. challenge yeah. that we ever go through. Right, right. So, a minority kind of come off lightly, if not escape it. Mm. Um, what are the current, what's the current belief as to I mean, is it genetic, uh, you know, dietary, the, the normal run of the gamut, right, the possibilities? What in your view or in the general view is, is it um, immunity? Maybe I don't see it as autoimmune or anything, but, you know, it's one of the factors that can, can influence many things, right? So what, what is the current belief or your personal opinion, if it should for any reason uh, be slightly different from, from that because. Um, about how women 
will come into menopause and how well uh, they'll do? No, above the, the small percentage, 10 or less than 10%, oh. that, that some, some are, are they more stoic? Are they more resilient? <laughs> I, I mean, I, and, and, I, and again, I realize it's a touchy subject. So when I say stoic, I'm not suggesting that people who have florid <laughs> symptoms are easily moved or something. It, it is, oh, gosh. it's like chronic pain I, in that respect, right? I mean, because menopause used to be a completely taboo subject, um, certainly my mother's generation did not discuss it. And I remember my own aunt saying, when I told her I was preparing for and writing an exam on it, uh, she just thought that was utterly absurd. <laughs> and why would somebody go to all that trouble? But that's her experience, which was not at all bothersome. Um, You know, the problem is there's no way to predict. I was younger. I saw a gynecologist who once said, oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and whatever your mother experienced is probably what you'll experience. That's really, unfortunately, not true. I have seen families of six or seven sisters, all of whom had different experiences with menopause. So although one would like to predicted via your relatives, it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about some of the aspects of why that is later. Okay, so we basically don't know, right? No. <laughs> we don't know. Okay, okay. No, I, th- I thought, I just thought there might be something on the horizon that's peaking interest or something. So how deficient in your view, is the treatment of menopausal symptoms in family practice? Oh, it's so poor. That rather shocking, actually. And, and that's, um, I have a pinned article on my Twitter feed about the fact that despite how much longer everyone is living, mm-hmm. particularly women, and the fact that women will spend a third to a half of their lives in menopause or as postmenopausal people, um, it's the lack of knowledge uh, amongst medical professionals is shocking, and it's not sufficiently or adequately covered in medical school if it's even mentioned. I went back through my medical school notes, and I believe we might have had a one-hour lecture on it at some point, and that was all I could find. Usually, it was considered a post-grad subject. Right. So, it's, it's pretty much, uh, unless people have developed a special interest like you have yeah. and educated themselves, I mean, the onus is, I, I've been to a few general practice um, CMEs, continuing medical mm. education where it's it features I haven't been to a menopausal seminar menopause sem- seminar but um, you know it comes up and then uh, but uh, it's it's not it's not an offering that's unless it's a specialty offering you know gynecological conditions it's, it'll be grouped under gynecological these conditions but mm. we know that's endocrinology endocrinological and so forth so it needs a lot of work if 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 um 10 is a good service a solid service Mm. give it another descriptor where do you think we are on from what you've seen because you work with i mean you you know the field right and you get people referred to you oh maybe a one or two for the vast majority or, what that, or only that much, right? Yeah. And, and why do you think it is so badly? Is it just, I know. Well, it's pretty obvious, you know, because it, it's, it's quite, quite easy to speak to that because the yes. majority of physicians has always been men. And although men are affected in that their partners go through it, mm-hmm. it they themselves do not. You know, it, it's just like one obstetrician once admitting that if men had babies, 
no man would ever have more than one, and birth control would be available at gas stations, you know. Uh, but and also not to forget that insurance companies have covered. Cialis and Viagra ever since it came out and was licensed, whereas many have yet to ever cover birth control and hormone replacement therapy. So, yeah. you know, it, it's truly one of those things that has been dismissed because of the patriarchy or call it what you want to male dominance. And you think it's perhaps also not financially compelling. For big, for oh, not big. at all. No. Okay. So, okay. Well, that also go a long way, I think, to explain, right? Uh, well, there was only one large study done by the National Institutes of Health, which yeah. is called the Women's Health Initiative, uh, which was actually a disaster when the initial results came out because the press got hold of them before they had been peer reviewed. And blasted all these negative things about hormone therapy in the press, you know, covers of magazines, banner articles, you know, uh, hormone therapy is related to increase in breast cancer, increase of heart attacks, all these negative things. And all these women abandoned their hormone therapy. Doctors started to refuse to prescribe it. And this was back in 2002. Yes. Since that time, many doctors have never become educated on the actual analysis of that data. Um, mm -hmm. The follow-up results that came out in 2005, yes, yeah. which was the estrogen arm only, which did not show any effects. And of course, there's always the problem about um, the press using things like relative um, occurrences instead of absolute data. So when they say there's a 33% increase, uh, that's actually not reflecting that it's gone from four to six people out of a thousand or 10,000. Right, right. The, the N's very low, the number, right? It's, yes, uh, the actual numbers yeah. affected. Oh, yeah, no, no. So, and I could ramble on about that for the rest of the hour. Well, but. As, as could I, because I remember very clearly being in general practice in Calgary at the time, 2002, I moved mm. to Calgary 2001. And, um, and I had this lady coming, I could hear her walking down the, the corridor. The, my door was slightly ajar. And uh, she came in and she stood the whole time, uh, initially anyway. And mm -hmm. I'd never met her before, and she said, you guys are giving us this crap. And then it came out that she saw it on CNN, it was, right, I think. Yeah. And I think it was the first time I recall it ever being released to the lay, the lay press before, you know, going through the journal system and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and Silas, so and I wasn't able to talk for it. For, I waited five minutes to talk, which, as you will know, is unusual for me that long. <laughs> and, and she basically, she's very distressed, and I understand. She claimed to have mm -hmm. had three cardiac events when no one else in her family had had it. Uh, okay. It was really, you know, so I said, well, clearly um, this is news to me. She, you don't even know that. I said, I, don't watch, I, didn't, I wasn't watching a lot of t uh, TV news at that time, right? And in, in the end, um, she stormed out, and uh, and our nurse, we had an RN at the time working with us, um, saw she was unhappy, greeted her, and she pushed her into the into the wall. Like saying, mm -hmm. So this very now, now, I mean, this is unusual, um, but the point is, part of me wanted to say, do you think your rage has got something to do with it? Cardiac event. Thank God I didn't say it. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. So it, it was it yeah. was a very strange sort of uh, encounter, and I, it's kind of imprinted in me. And I, and I remember being quite shocked going home, saying, "Well, why would you release it to any news outlet that you know goes heavily on ratings and mm -hmm. like a, a wow moment?" You know, I, I just it was it wasn't a good idea. But anyway. Well, yeah. no, you know, at NAMS conferences, etc., it's been brought up as 
having a similar impact within that field as for the general public the day that JFK was shot. <laughs> so so it, it was a major event. Well, that, that's huge because, I mean, you know, it's really only um, when Kennedy was shot at 9-11 that people will remember where they were exactly and exactly. who they were with and, 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 and also the context, right? Mm. Get the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. About five years ago, Terrell, I remember speaking over lunch, as we sometimes did at the time, um, Mm. I asked you, because you you've always been steeped in this discipline, which I think is very commendable, and we need more people like you for sure. Uh, you pointing out that women will sometimes spend even a third of their life. You said up to a half. I mean, that, that is kind of, that's very sobering to me. I, I can't believe I didn't work that out before, but obviously. Yeah, much yeah it is major. And I said to you, I said, well, I asked you rather, I said, Tarot. In one word, what is the worst thing for most women going through menopause? And you immediately and unflinchingly replied, invisibility. You recall that, right? Mm-hmm. Very now, much. Now, I, I, was, I was kind of shocked, but it sounded strangely familiar, and that's because I'm kind of steeped in biopsychosocial stuff. But uh, I, as I say, it was, I was surprised and unsurprised uh, because when you think of menopause, you think of heart flashes and emotional liability or, or being destabilized periodically or episodically, sensitive maybe. I've got to choose mm. my words very carefully. Um, and it's something that most people would not suspect is directly related to menopause. But of course, I was unsurprised by the swiftness of your answer because you have a, if I may say, a reputation to sweep in and identify the main issue in an almost falconesque type of way. And that's a compliment. Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I take it as such. Um, so, so this is telling me in terms of what you said of patriarchy and not um, being funded properly and so forth. Um, is this still part of the perceived, and I'm not saying it's only perceived, it perceived and or re reality of an insubordinate position in society still today? Hmm. Well, I doubt, you know, I don't know if every woman would describe that word uh, as their choice for that question. However, I think it applies in all three spheres because um, obviously the one social thing is that a woman is older. She's no longer reproductively viable. Um, that's where not, um, what can I say, considered to be attractive anymore in the way you are in your 20s, which I know from, uh, unfortunately, I went through menopause the same time my daughter went through puberty, and it was like we were going through the same thing in opposite directions. Um, and just walking with her at a mall, and I would always let her cross first because the cars would stop to oogle her. <laughs> but if I went first, I was lucky not to get run over. And I'm... I'm not the first person to notice that. I mean, no, no, not no. everybody likes Jermaine Greer, but she even wrote about it in her 1990 book, The Change, and how she and a friend sat at a table in France for a couple of hours before they could get the waiter's attention. So, you know, um, also there was a wonderful skit done, oh my gosh, a few years ago by Amy Schumer, uh, and friends, uh, it aired on her short-lived show on Comedy Central <clears throat> and uh, about a woman turning 40, but basically uh, when she was becoming unfuckable. Uh, so, and it really uh, did hit home with many women. You know, biologically, a woman's 
invisible because she's having all these changes and effects and symptoms that can desperately affect her quality of life. And yet the medical societies and professionals ignore her as they usually do, particularly women in pain. Um, You can go on social media and find any number of reports of women whose pain has been ignored for years. This is very common actually in endometriosis, but it's rife with menopausal symptoms. Um, so biopsychosis, well, psychologically, a woman knows that she's now, uh, well, a lot of women actually, uh, if you ever watched, oh, heavens, what was that wonderful series on Prime? Um, and, you know, a lot of women welcome the lack of attention that is paid to them, um, you know, especially if you're in a place where wolf whistles, et cetera, are done. Mm-hmm. That that can be of a relief to many women, but for a lot of women, they feel like they've lost their femininity. You know, uh, they're just old hags, which unfortunately society often expresses in the fact that all the actresses, certainly in any piece coming out of the U.S., is nothing but these young women. Um, they're always young, mostly blonde. Uh, all with fantastic figures, but, you know, we know how those are achieved nowadays. So menopause in its entirety can affect a woman and render her invisible in others' eyes, in the eyes of her healthcare providers, and to herself. So, Right. right. Yeah. Sorry, Terrell, uh, this is a very interesting point we're making, uh, yeah, you're making, but um, it's time for a quick commercial break. Uh, Folks, you're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. I'm speaking with Dr. Terrell Fellhaber on the subject of menopause. We will be right back. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain, are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. You are listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Terrell Fellhaber on the subject menopause. So that's an important point because, you know, you, you get kind of, I mean, you get various kinds of film, a movie, right? Um, mm. the, the blockbuster <laughs> type, um, you know, very often the interest, the female interest, as they like to call it, the yeah. female interest, is someone who barely looks peripubic, that's got five PhDs and 10 black belts in various martial arts and can power, uh, you know, drive a submarine and this kind of thing. And then the male interest uh, interest comes on and it's Sean Connery until obviously recently. And it's this match has got to the point where sometimes it's a deal breaker. I mean, you know, I don't mind, like I I don't admit to watching James Bond movies. Mm. Theoretically should have grown up by the time (laughs) I started eating broccoli. There's a connection there between Bond and broccoli. 
But, yeah, um, I know. <laughs> but uh, you know, the point is that you 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 see it for what it is, action and kind of fantasy as a kind of odd mix, and it surprises myself sometimes. But when you see something like that, and it's this is society's way of playing pinball with your emotions or interest level or perceived interest level, it kind of is a downer for me, you know, like other people. Yeah. I want to make billions. I mean, that's the main thing, right? I think to put it succinctly is that the same, I, I read this somewhere and it was referring to, I think Tom Cruise, but one, one of the standard leading men is how they keep making movies. Um, however, the love interest or female interests never age. Well, he does. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's, it's definitely there's a bias and getting parts and mm. lots being written about it. And uh, yeah, so, so on that point, because this is important. I mean, if, if one were to consider this is the worst for most women, I I'd absolutely trust your judgment on this because you said it with so much conviction with no hesitation. Mm. How, what is, a lot of women who are listening are going to think, well, right on, sister or whatever the saying is these days. I'm out of it a bit. Um, the, the, what do you tell them? How do you tell them? It's not, it, there's no, it's not a solution, but how do they reframe it so that it's not so corrosive a thought or a caustic a situation for them? Well, there's many ways to approach it. Number one, every woman should be educated about menopause and what happens to their bodies because it has been so long not a topic for dinner table talk. Um, uh, a lot of women don't know what's happening. And I know in my own practice, when I had a family practice, of women being absolutely uh, caught unawares about what's going on. I had what really uh, started my interest in uh, researching to find correct information was a woman who came into my office complaining of a list of your kind of standard menopause symptoms, breaking out into tears because she thought she was dying. And no woman should have to feel that way. So, number one, public education should right. be included on this stage of a woman's life. Just like humans have stages of life, this is a major change or into a, a very long-lasting stage of women's lives. So, that, that's the first way. Um, so, I've, I always used to start my consults with explanations about what's going on, you know, how it comes about, why we have it. And the fact that we have to remember that we've, with age, hopefully comes wisdom, comes an acceptance of ourselves outside of what these societal uh, so-called norms that are thrown at us by the publishing and movie industries. And to appreciate what our bodies still can do instead of, you know, just physically, you might not be able to run anymore, but you can still go for a lovely walk and take a nature bath. So, so to speak, you know, you can change to swimming. You, there's, you just need to shift thoughts instead of the regret for what's no longer, you have to appreciate what's, what still is. And of course, most women need a lot of support at the time they're going through menopause because they're often in the middle of the sandwich, that sandwich generation. They're caregiving for their elderly parents. Um, as women are having children later in life, they're caring for their children and often teenagers, which is like the one of the most challenging periods of time in child raising. You know, and they're trying to uh, maintain their own identity. There's always economic worries, um, thoughts, realizations that perhaps retirement is sooner than you thought. Uh, there's just a lot of pressures on women at midlife. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, they're going through all these physiological changes uh, that make 
you know, cause brain fog and discomfort. So number one, education. Number two, reassurance. And then, of course, targeting treatment of symptoms, um, if appropriate and acceptable to the person. Because once again, everybody's different, as yeah. is the experience with menopause. Yeah. And I think also, you know, this thing with the societal pressure and stuff. Now, mm -hmm. I've told patients before, and it may sound very arrogant in the beginning, but it's completely predictable when you really think about it. The society's ideas and stuff is generally the net vector or non-vector of an aggregation of mainly mediocrities. I mm. mean, the L curve and all that, you know? So it's like, that. it's what, what does the collective think? And I'm supposed to shoehorn my life into this. Um, there may be times when it's very appropriate because it makes mm -hmm. complete sense. But a lot of the times it's set by the culture is set by the volume of movies we make in a certain way or books oh, yeah. that are written in a certain way or about a certain subject. So it's probably the, the least thing, you know, I think societal values are more often a metric rather than a pace setter, mm. a dangerous pace setter or example to follow. But it's more of a metric of what the hell's going on. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I have to say something always on. on. Anyway. Um, that is that is most interesting. I mean, actually, in the end, so much of it boils down to education. And again, I come back to the same thing every time. There's mm. so much education that needs to be done in medicine. I'm always honoured to about with the chronic pain, as you know, because you also have a, a great background in chronic pain mm. management. And um, yeah. basically, extensive experience. And basically... How do you tell people about a lot of important stuff in 15-minute increments or 10 by the time they've given their side, you know, of what they want to discuss and so forth? And it's something that I don't – I think we're going to see the, the emergence of health coaches for yes. information. I think that's an essential someone who can be newly qualified and trained within even even – two or three years on a certain subject, uh, a subset of medical, not the entire medical thing, say the gut biome and GI stuff, you know? I mean, others mm. work out what it should be, obviously, others than, than, than me, but I, I think that's the way it's headed because we've run into such a fix now with the family practitioner's situation. Oh, it's, it's absolutely disastrous and devastating. Right, right. Um, of the biopsychosocial treatment that is that you're seeing through referrals and that, what what is provided? What is best provided that has to be provided? So, what are they doing right? I'm trying to be fair now. To what are doctors like me who refer to you? What are we doing right? <laughs> or not a lot? I mean. Uh, Unfortunately, no. Um, but that was the idea behind setting up this informational and somewhat treatment course uh, with Dr. Gooderum. And the big thing is, is that our Canadian medical system does not support menopause at all as any sort of specialty or consultation. So it is impossible to support oneself doing only menopause, which is a real pity because I know anybody I've ever had as a patient was so grateful for their time. But doing an hour consult, which is what's needed when the education has to go along with it, um, it's just not feasible. So part of the setting up of that eight-part course is that Dr. Goodrum's very experienced in teaching CBT and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And that can be done in our system through group visits, right. which could even happen over Zoom during the pandemic. So what the sessions, which were an hour and a half, um, also constricted by billing, but whatever, um, it was uh, education piece, we, we chose the, the eight most annoying or prevalent symptoms of menopause and explained what's going on behind them 
while teaching also some mindfulness techniques and just breathing techniques, relaxation exercises. And I think it was very well received. I was in on the teaching of the first few runs before the pandemic, um, but it's what's kept her, her clinic going actually through the pandemic. And once women have had that education, they have a better idea mm-hmm. of what questions to ask their health practitioner and what possible available treatments, which we do go through, um, she might like to try. So given that everyone is different, often it is a trial of one um, as science. Um, you know, science, if you're doing a retrospective study, um, the N is always the number of subjects included, whether it's prospective or retrospective. Right. And both in chronic pain and menopause treatments, because it's an N of one, every treatment is a trial for that person. Um, And there's a bit of art involved because medicine is not 100% science. This is your remedy and Mm. on we go. Uh, There has to be experience on top of the knowledge as well as tangential um, knowledge and compassion involved in combining what's going to work for any one person in chronic pain or in menopause. So um, that probably doesn't really answer your question. (laughs) It certainly informs. This is the important thing. You know, added to which, but also affects the outcome is the perception the patient has in the belief you have of your own advice. Mm. And we forget that. So it, to getting oneself to a level where you can say, based on what the work you've done, you can say this with confidence. Oh, yes, that makes um, a big difference. No, no, I mean, there are, in the beginning, there are, there are things you're going to try. Um, because, as you say, everyone's different. But I'm really glad you brought this science in medicine because, as you know, the last three years we've heard a good deal about science and scientism, and it's often coming from a very uninformed place. Yes. It's kind of lip service, and you know there's no substance uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of behind or very little substance, I should say. And um, especially for you, having worked in a... Real science. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, environmental yeah. science, yeah. it's probably not like mathematics. Well, it is mathematics, of course. Oh, well, no, I mean, being a research chemist was very, um, yes, very precise and scientific. Yes. So, right. yeah. so, so you agree that a lot of, certainly at family practitioner level, I'm not talking about being hmm. a medical uh, biochemist or chemical pathologist, as it's called in the UK, you know, yeah. it's very scientific, but from a, a, a family physician point of view, I don't think that listeners understand how much of the treatment they get that's considered good practices, and I would agree, mm. is really based on experiential stuff. Often. Very much so. <laughs> and we, as a question, you've been a question writer yourself for the College of Family Physicians yes. of Canada and myself too, and we reviewed one year a question where it was what proportion of what is considered good va- uh, good practices in family medicine is based on firm medical evidence. And the answer <laughs> essentially was um, more than half is based on flimsy evidence or no evidence whatsoever. And people yeah, are very, very shocked to hear that. It's very much like the statistic you know, there's a doctor strike and the mortality goes down in a country. <laughs> the skeptics love that because you see what are you guys doing, but they forget it's not procedures are being cancelled and all these things. Yeah. But it, it is something to keep in mind that the science, the ideal thing we hold, hold up as science is a very valuable tool, but it's a tool and mm. there are many ways of knowing. How do you... Yeah. How do you, why is it easier, generally speaking, to bring up a second child or third child? I mean, unless mm. you have a, some special issue, you know, that's, that's different. Depends right? on the child, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that would be true. 
So I'm mm. glad you brought that up because I think it's important for people to know. This is well, also just I mean, you've been in, you've been in medicine um, longer than I have, but I mean over 30 years in medicine. How many times do does the evidence support flip flopping? Oh yeah, absolutely standard procedures that we've been taught to do, oh. or medicines we've were told were essential. Beta blockers being the big one. But <laughs> and coffee's good for you. No, it's bad. Yes, it's good. No, it's bad. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. And, and they're looking at different things. So this is the flip-flop phenomenon. But I'm glad you okay. brought that up because I sometimes, you know, I, I, I try and make people aware of it, but sometimes one can cause confusion, I suppose. Um, mm. Now, how, what is your proposal based on, because clearly you know way more than most family physicians by far should this be well it should be remedied i suppose at med school right away yeah but it should be it should also be um rectified in in general education i I believe they still have you know some basic health classes and in middle school which is when kids need to be taught all of the basics to being a human being um and, you know, it, it shouldn't be something that they titter about behind their hand, you know. They, mm-hmm. it, you know, it just should be a fact of life presented as such and accepted as such. Now, another question I've got to ask. Hmm. Are, are male physicians really bad at it? Oh, unfortunately. Not all, though. I mean, the no, North no, American no, except- Society was started by a man. Um, there are many caring male physicians uh, who actually do a fabulous job about it. Yes. But uh, on the other hand, there's just probably many, many more, uh, particularly family doctors. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't include most obstetricians and gynecologists, but certainly in family medicine, there are many who simply don't give a hoot. And they don't want to be educated about hormone therapy. They refuse to use it because it might be risky because they're still uh, somehow mired in those sensational headlines of 2002. And they just try to toss antidepressants at women, um, which is really, I mean, a lot of women have gone through that and they're, they're usually very pissed off that this, you know, it was just pretty much dismissed, handed a prescription for something they weren't expecting to get. And yeah, yeah I think the purposes of my questioning was, was more and not to put it at the feet of men, but or at the doorstep mm. of men. It was more to say, um, do you think they have maybe a feeling that Look, a lot of women would prefer a gynecologist, female gynecologist. We know that, right? Oh, they yes. And um, maybe the perception among male family physicians is that, I, you know, no matter how much I empathize and that I don't necessarily understand as well as... Uh, oh, yeah, as long as they recognize that. But but most are just like, oh, well, it's nothing. Um Oh, is insulting. Not seeing it as an issue. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's insulting to any woman. Now, a person who's having a really bad case, the top 10%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, severe daily life-intrusive symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, emotionally roller coaster um, stuff, um, relationships falling apart or threatened at least. Um, Could you just tell us more about biosimilars and bioidenticals? I mean, these are catchwords people hear and may not be very clear on. Um, Are you referring to compounded preparations? Yeah, yeah. Well, that goes back. I feel like Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory, but that goes back to the Women's Health Initiative, because when those 2002 results came out, uh, I was living in Saskatchewan and all of the horse farms that from which they were producing Premarin all of a sudden um, had so many fewer animals. And the first time I ever received an advertisement for a quote unquote compounding pharmacy was there. And it was in response to um, 
the Women's Health Initiative because they advertise their their products as safer because they're bioidentical. Now, this goes back to education. Bioidentical in and of itself simply means that something has the same chemical structure as what our body makes. And there are plenty of pharmacological, thoroughly tested three stages of patient trials, bioidentical hormone products available. The problem with compounding is that the few studies that have actually been done comparing the products that come out between compounding pharmacies and even between batches from one compounding pharmacy showed a greater than 20 to 40% variation of the primary ingredient. Now, that's fine, maybe, if somebody's a little underdosed. um, But if you overdose estrogen, um, you know, you could end up causing unnecessary blood clotting, etc. You know, there's, it's, it's irresponsible. And part of the reason the perception is that these, these preparations are safer is that they are not by law required to give you um, a content handout uh, such as we get with any pharmaceutical prescription. So because women are not reading this information. And of course, any of the pharmaceutical products have a black box warning, also courtesy of the WHAI, um, was that, uh, and it was promoted by celebrities. So uh, I personally always prescribe what are bioidentical hormones. However, I prefer to use the ones that are prepared by a pharmaceutical company. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of the professional societies in the States, Canada, or internationally um, support the use of compounded chemicals. I was fortunate actually in around 2004 to be given uh, somebody's binder who went a pharmacist who went through the training, which was all centered in Houston. And the articles that they included in their background and support study were all enormously biased and done pretty much by either the people who set up the training company or who graduated from their program. So whenever that's the case, you really have to question Uh, what other evidence is available. Right, right. So, I mean, NAMS actually had a position paper against them in 2006. Um, The Mayo Clinic, women's clinic, came out with a position paper against them in 2011. The International Menopause Society's paper was a little later than that, but, um, you know, none of them will support the use of them, and I wouldn't prescribe them. Right. Now, I, I got to ask you this question because it gets brought up. Mm. Uh, the views on andropause. Uh, <laughs> is this an oh, you're on hold situation if you're a man or menopause light, L-I-T-E, for those who tend to get so-called man flu, everything's bad? Mm. Or is it a construct of the drug companies? I, I ask the question because I've had it a few times. Mm, of course. It was very popular about 10 years ago. Um, <clears throat> there's no comparison. And andropause is actually just a construct. Um, it's almost like, oh, my God, women can't have a condition men don't share. <laughs> so well, Me the too. problem is, is that um, if I were able to draw you a graph with this slow decline and then a precipitous drop, followed by a a very slow decline at a much lower level. That is what happens to estrogen and progesterone for women. You know, it's it's very similar to postpartum when you're just swimming in all these hormones and feeling so happy with everything. And on day three, after you've given birth, the entire world's in tears. Um, (laughs) You know, well, monthly, actually, before that, what before menopause, women go through that. But another story. <clears throat> but what happens with t- 
testosterone in both men and women is that it undergoes this very de gradual decline over our life. And men don't have any faster decline in testosterone than women do. Um, a lot of people don't even realize women have testosterone, but we do. And um, it just becomes slightly more dominant at menopause. That's why right. women tend to grow chin hairs and, you know, things like that. Um, so, no, andropause no. doesn't exist. Yeah. The closest men get to experiencing some of at least the vasomotor symptoms, which is the hot flashes mm -hmm. and night sweats, is when they are prostate cancer patients on androgen deprivation yeah. therapy. And then they experience hot flashes yeah. quite severely. So, so yeah. Carol, if someone is now perimenopausal listening to the show, mm. what are the indicators of being at the right place? What do they look for? Designation in the doctor's credentials? What should um, they seek out in your view? And, of course, it's going to vary. I mean, even between the states and Canada, it's it's different, and uh, province to province, city to city, it it could be. But but what are the key? What are your key pointers that you feel tells the person they're on the right track? Well, I, I just have to point out before I answer that there's no such thing about of balancing your hormones, which is something you see right. many, many ads for. And anybody who wants to do blood testing of hormones is actually, you know, uh, FOS because our hormone levels are in picograms. You know, they're, they're not, mm -hmm. you're not able to really obtain precise levels. And one of the reasons why women have difficulty and there's always been difficulty in, in, trying to get testosterone replacement for women is just that <laughs> none of the lab equipment is calibrated and to measure the low limits, we, low levels we start with. Mm -hmm. But what you can look for in both Canada and, and the U.S. is if somebody has cared enough to learn about menopause and write an examination, they can obtain the NCMP, which is the NAM Certified Menopause Practitioner. NAMS has a website. It is menopause.org. And they have a list of certified menopause practitioners in those countries. The NAM certification can also be done by nurses and um, physiotherapists and pharmacists if they you know, we're all inclusive, unlike some other societies. So that is, uh, that's really one of the most reliable things they can do. Um, in this country, in the UK, the British Menopause Society has another designation, which is also wonderful. Um, and it, it's actually, they're dealing with menopause remarkably in the UK, they have already discussed it at parliament and it is becoming a thing in employment and workplaces where they are starting to modify, say, police uniforms for women, you know, because just treating women as a smaller size man doesn't work for functionality and comfort. No. Um, so it's, they're doing fabulously, but yeah, you want, if possible, to know that this person actually has done some study and reading. Right. Some due diligence, yeah. So, yes. Carol, yeah. Uh, uh, we're running out of time rapidly. It's been a great yeah. discussion. Um, what, what out of medicine, family practice, menopause, oncology, life, give us a lesson, an important lesson, a one-liner. Anything? Live life day to day. Be present in the present. Yeah, yeah. No, excellent advice. Um, the hallmark of excellent advice is, sim is simplicity and clarity, and that could have come from uh, mm. a llama, you know, <laughs> it's easy, or, or, yeah. or an academic, or, or the person next door, or from Terrell. Terrell, I well, think... You know. If they're right, they're right. Farrell, <laughs> yeah. this has been wonderful to catch up. Um, great to see you again. 
And oh, well, uh, thank you. It's been fun, Trevor. And uh, keep up the great work on all the fronts that you're still involved. And uh, yeah, we it, it's a, it's sad that the family practitioner's situation has got to the stage, but we still have oh. aspects like you. Okay. Oh, you take good care. Okay. Thank you. This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, signing off. I have been speaking with Dr. Um, Terrell Fellhaber discussing the subject of menopause. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.